Let's pray together, shall we? Uh, Father, your word tells us that it is a lamp to our feet and a light for our path. In other words, it shows us the way in which we should walk. And uh, we pray you would give us grace to not only see it, but to live it out. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I don't know if you've noticed this before, but we're surrounded by reminders that integrity is hard to come by. Uh, think about retail on its own. Why do we have a wee CE mark on the goods that we buy? It's because we've opened the box on enough substandard goods to know why. I mean, some things just are not as advertised. And why do websites like Trustpilot exist? Well, because we've met plenty of Dell boys who promise top quality goods at a good price, but whose work shows up their lack of integrity. If you don't know who Dell boy is, by the way, look it up. Now, this isn't a new problem, of course. Integrity in retail was hard to come by even back in Paul's day, like in the potter's trade. I mean, one of the problems with pottery is that when it dries, it can crack. And conscientious traders, of course, would naturally just bin cracked pots. But the Dell boys wouldn't. They would cover up the cracks with wax. Uh, the way that we would use polyfiller on a wall, seal it up, sell it on. Now, consumers clocked onto this, though. And if you as a trader lacked integrity, well, you would lack income. So, conscientious traders developed their own CE mark. Well, there were signs really, signs that hung on their stalls. What did they say? Well, in Greek provinces, they said elikrenea. That's a compound word made up of the words for son, helios, and the word for judge, krinos. So, son judged. That was their CE stamp. Hold any of their items up to the sun or set them out in its heat. And you'll see that these and their manufacturers are the genuine article. In Roman provinces they had other signs, but in Latin they read sine sera, which means without wax, from which of course we get our word sincere, according to folklore anyway. Well, I start with this because this section of 2 Corinthians running from the chapter, chapter 1 verse 12 to chapter 2 verse 12 is like Paul's sincera sign over his own ministry. He's writing to a church that had, had called his integrity into question. Largely because Paul had said he'd come and visit, but changed his plans. Though he had good reason to, but the church just wasn't listening to him. No, they were listening to some of the false teachers who'd wormed their way into the church, who were saying, we're the genuine article, not flaky Paul. Well, their words were like, fake one-star reviews on Trustpilot of people who were truly five-star tradesmen. You know, they cast aspersions on their character and people start to doubt the integrity of the person. But now he's writing to a church here in 2 Corinthians that has responded with repentance, sorrow, over an earlier, uh, because of an earlier letter he had written, a severe letter, uh, a letter of correction. And praise God, the majority of the church gulped down their pride, facepalmed over their own worldly assessment of Paul, and confessed how gullible they had been to swallow the misleading guff of disingenuous false teachers. They acknowledge Paul as the genuine article, 
and that's the news that Titus takes to Paul. And so Paul then writes 2 Corinthians, and here in chapter 1 verse 12, we find Paul getting into some of the nitty-gritty of the defence of his own integrity. And he writes then to boast in his own integrity and, amazingly, to encourage the members of the church to do the same. Now, before we dive right in, what relevance does it have for us? Why should we be listening to this and paying attention to its message? Well, some things have happened recently in the evangelical world that shows that integrity is still even in Christian circles, hard to come by. From pedestaled pastors exposed for sinfully abusing their power and influence in the treatment of others, to so-called untouchable apologists whose duplicitous lifestyle revealed a catastrophic lack of integrity that called not only their ministry, but the reputation of Jesus into question. You know, when held up to the light of God's word, the pure light of God's word, they couldn't hide the fault lines of ungodly character. They were with wax. And that said, such insincerity is by no means beyond any pastor, elder or ministry leader in Charlotte Chapel. Indwelling sin, the spiritual warfare make Christian leadership a war zone for us. And this passage calls on Christian leaders to not only place a high value on integrity, but to fight for it, to love it, to love righteousness and humility. And it calls us members of a church to pray for the same and boast before God when we see and experience and are on the receiving end of, well, humble, commendable Christian leadership. So let's dive in. I've got two main points. Let me show you firstly the boastworthy ministry of Christian leaders. We'll see this in verse 12a. Yes, I'm talking about boasting in ministry. That is what is commended here. And we know that because, well, boasting actually bookends these verses 12 to 14. In verse 12, Paul's boasting. Now this is our boast, he says, our meaning Paul, Timothy and Titus, the leadership team. And verse 14, Paul's encouraging the church to boast in him and his co-workers too. Verse 14 says, I hope that you can boast of us. Now, that's fascinating to read, isn't it? Because isn't boasting bad? Well, I guess that depends, to take the proverb, whose trumpet you're blowing. I mean, if you're blowing your own trumpet, taking unwarranted pride in your own achievements, then that's the bad kind of boasting that Paul condemns throughout 1 Corinthians and the kind of boasting that James 4.16 calls evil. But if you're talking humbly about the way you behave or the things that you've done in a way that gives credit to God, well, that kind of boasting is commendable. That's what we see throughout 2 Corinthians. So boasting is good or bad depending on who is ultimately glorified. So here, Paul is boasting, but he's not patting himself on the back. Everything he commends is down to God's grace. It's a gift that he can't take credit for. And we'll see that in a few seconds. So what is it that makes the ministry of Paul boastworthy? Well, two things in particular, conscientious conduct and grace dependence. Let's look at the conscientious conduct first of all. Now, this is our boast, verse 12. 
Our conscience testifies that we have conducted ourselves in the world and especially in our relations with you with integrity and godly sincerity. Now, what is this uh, conscience that Paul is talking about and its testimony? Well, the conscience, of course, is like a warning system placed by God in the heart of every person. It kind of, I guess it adjudicates between right and wrong, depending on the standards that a person holds, okay? When you become a Christian, your heart is cleansed from a guilty conscience, as Hebrews 9.14 says, and it's made sensitive to the word of God. In other words, his law, his word becomes the standard that we live by. Now, Christopher Ashe in his book Pure Joy says that for the Christian, the conscience is the highly sensitive, slightly unreliable instrument that convicts us of the gap between what the Bible says and how we're living. That's really good. It can be seared and is hardened. That's why it's slightly unreliable, but it can be sensitive. That's why it's important not to neglect it. In fact, the conscience is a super helpful gift from God. As 1 Timothy 1.19 says that if you hold on to a good conscience, it can actually keep you from shipwrecking your faith. So it's got an important part to play. So in Paul's life and ministry, a clear conscience is crucial for performing it, for doing it. He says that so often in his letters. You can look it up for yourself. But in 1 Timothy uh, 1 verse 5, for example, when urging Timothy to command false teachers to stop sinning, he says the goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. There are those words again, that's integrity packaged up for you. Timothy could command those who were teaching false things, bad things, satanic, wicked things, he could command them if he wanted to, out of anger or rage or resentment, but that would only indicate impurity of heart, actually, and a seared conscience. But genuine Christian leaders, that for genuine Christian leaders, that's unacceptable. No, Paul's conscience is a significant witness to the integrity of leadership. That's what he commends Timothy to do, to do it with integrity in a way that still maintains righteousness in the leader and that's what Paul's conscience is doing for him in relation to his relations with the world and especially with the Corinthians okay his conscience is a significant witness to the integrity of his leadership team and their conduct because they say they're behaving in ways that are consistent consistent with what the Bible says so how have they been behaving how have they conducted themselves well, with consistency, first of all, verse 12, in their relations with people who aren't Christians and, well, with no, discontin no discontinuity, by the way, between what they say and do, whether it's in relations with people in the world or relation in relations with the, the church family themselves, there's no disconnect, no inconsistency, whether they're re relating to non-Christians or Christians. They simply are who they are. They are the real deal. Genuine, genuinely the genuine article. So what you see is what you get with Paul and his pals. There's consistency there. And that's how it should be in ministry. So they conducted themselves with consistency. 
but also with integrity. Now, the word integrity in the original language has the same root word for, as, as the word for holiness. And Robert Murray McShane, when talking about pastoral ministry, famously said, my congregation's greatest need is my personal holiness. That's so true. God-likeness, in other words, that's the foundation for authentic ministry leadership. And Paul says, my conscience testifies that this is how we've conducted ourselves, especially in relations with you. We've been holy. So they've conducted themselves with consistency, integrity, and thirdly, sincerity. Paul and his co-workers have loved and lived without wax. The church members in Corinth, you know, could hold him, Timothy and Titus, up to the pure light of God's word and find no fault lines, no cracks, no hidden characteristics that call their ministry or their gospel into question. No, no, no. Quite the opposite. Sincerity, integrity, consistency are the very things that give the Corinthians this greater confidence, even in their own repentance. And it teaches them further lessons in what to look for in authentic Christian leaders. They'll need that lesson because there are plenty of false Christian leaders in amongst their congregation. And we need the same lesson too. Friends, whether you're a Sunday school teacher, a yak leader or timeout leader or an elder, conscientious conduct is something that we must aspire to. Character is crucial in Christian living, but especially so in Christian leadership. And whether in the home or the church, the workplace or the streets, uh, consistency is key. Integrity and sincerity are actually vital means of reflecting the purity of Christ, the truthfulness of his word, and anything contrary to that, we have to understand, blights his reputation. So, aspire to the boastworthy ministry of Paul and his co-workers, even as you recognise it in them. Conscientious conduct counts, and so does grace dependence. Look with me again at verse 12. We have done so, in other words, conducted ourselves, relying not on worldly wisdom, but on God's grace. Now, worldly wisdom, it's what's driven this Corinthian church into all kinds of messy situations and messy relationships. They've relied on worldly wisdom to shape their church, really, and boasted in those things. They've made worldly values the aspiration of the whole congregation. They've relied on worldly means of doing ministry to achieve results, resorting to cleverness with words designed to impress an audience into conviction. But Paul says, we're wholly reliant on God's grace in everything and for everything. These guys, these false teachers, have been boasting and bragging and blowing their own trumpets about all sorts of things. Oh, I've done this, I've done that, I've said this, listen to this. And Paul says... We've done our duty. We've relied on God for everything. They brag and say, look at how much I'm schooled and skilled. Paul says, I rely on God's grace. What do I have and what have I achieved that he didn't give me or orchestrate? It's humility. Was Paul responsible then for engineering such sincerity? No, he actually knew that but for the grace of God, he'd be a very different man doing a very different kind of ministry. 
Now he was conscientious in his conduct, but even the sensitivity of that conscience and the will to live and serve with integrity was God's gift itself to Paul. And Paul knew it and Paul was humbled by it. And that's what made his conduct, again, boastworthy. It's incredible to see, isn't it? Friends, the lesson in this is absolutely simple. We can look to God for the grace to live and serve as we ought. We give ourselves to study, we give ourselves to prayer, we give ourselves to developing competency in all kinds of skills, be that preaching or leading a Bible study or, or whatever. But we rely on God for every single thing that we do, for every single thing that we say. And any good that is done, we don't pat ourselves on the back. There's a reason why it's hard to do that. We glorify God instead. What a great principle for us. What a great principle for every Christian and especially for those in leadership. Because too many leaders have ruined their ministry and brought the name of Jesus into disrepute because they've not been conscientious in their conduct. But Christ died for our sins to cleanse us from that guilty conscience, remember, and gave us a spirit to help us be like him. So pray that consistency, integrity, sincerity and a dependence on God's grace are all these definitive marks of behaviour and service in Christian leadership would be ours for all of us in Charlotte Chapel and for the leaders of the church and of ministries in the church. Well that's the kind of ministry Christian leaders should um, recognise in Paul and his team, Christian, the church members should recognise in Paul and his team, and that's what we should aspire to ourselves. That's what that's boastworthy Christian leadership. But this brings me to point two, which which shows you the lead on in verses twelve to fourteen in this argument with Paul, the hope expressed by the apostle Paul in verses thirteen and fourteen. He says. For we do not write to you anything you cannot read or understand. And I hope that as you have understood us in part, you will come to understand fully that you can boast of us just as we will boast of you in the day of the Lord Jesus. Now, what is Paul saying here? Essentially, it's this. Paul is hoping that the church fully appreciate the manner of his ministry. They fully appreciate the conscientious conduct and his grace reliance. Verse 13 kind of hints at some of the criticisms of Paul that we'll pick up on a little bit later in the letter. So I'm not going to say a lot about it just now. But they've been saying Paul's someone who says one thing and does another. He's one thing in person and another thing in his letters. You know. But Paul just continues to insist on his integrity, not only in his conduct, but his method. And clarity defines Paul's ministry. Clarity is crucial to Christian leadership. Paul says, look, everything I've taught and written, it's all very straightforward and perfectly understandable. I'm not trying to be convoluted or weird. I'm not trying to be creative. I'm just trying to declare God's word. As we'll see later on, he'll say, we set forth the truth plainly and so commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. That is the... Uh, 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 clear and concise definition of what his ministry entailed. But even the severe letter that's referenced, even that severe letter urging them to repent, he said, 
It's all pretty clear what I'm asking for. It's all pretty clear what I'm instructing you in, okay? Paul saying things are clear that's not hard to understand. Then into verse 14, Paul tells us that he hopes that they'll fully repent and fully appreciate what they once did, essentially the authenticity of his ministry. Their repentance had indicated a level of understanding that encouraged Paul. And his encouragement is evident in this very letter. But so is his urging of them to fully repent, fully turn, fully understand. Actually, we'll see that in relation to three or four things in this letter. How he says, okay, you've done that in part. Now show me how you truly are repenting by doing this in full. Like in relation to the gift for the Judean famine relief that we'll see in chapters 8 and 9. He says, okay, now you've said you're sorry. Well, I guess the fruit of your apology and your sorrow and your understanding of the right way to go about this is that you'll give to this famine relief and do so generously. Now, think about the reason why Paul says this. He's not saying it again to make them feel bad. He's actually pointing it out to be pastorally helpful. I mean, he could have said, yeah, you're right. I'm the real deal. You certainly should be sorry. But he's not like that. He's gentle with them. What an example to pastors and to church leaders. Shepherding sheep. Even shepherding critics. Shepherding the repentant. His ministry serves as an encouragement for these people for the church in Corinth to complete their repentance. It teaches them, even as he continues to encourage them in the right way. Of course, Paul has a purpose for encouraging this full repentance. Paul hopes that the church will actually boast of Paul and his co-workers just as they boast in themselves. Now, that is fascinating to see. I mean, a church can boast of its leaders when they conduct uh, uh, when they love, live, and lead without wax. That's what Paul's saying here. When they feel a sense of gratitude and gladness uh, for the leaders that God has given them, recognising what God has given them through their service. And their boasting will reflect the boasting of the church leader. That's what we, Paul says. I boasted, you boast. You know, he, Paul says, we serve with a deep sense of privilege, gratitude and gladness in the service of the church, of Christ's blood-bought sheep. That's true for Paul, who rejoiced in his labours, in souls saved, church plant, churches planted, leaders trained. Um, those things were really the seal of his apostleship, the proof that he was truly carrying out that commission that he talks about in Romans 1.5 of of being an apostle to the Gentiles. But it's also true for pastors whose ministry in various ways confirms what they outwardly decided, inwardly decided, sorry, inwardly desired when they thought about pursuing ministry and what a church externally recognised in them when, well, when they, when he approached them to explore suitability for it. It's brilliant to see. And it's true for those who lead in other ways, who lead growth groups or rooted or prayer meetings. I mean, how much do we know that it just takes a small thing? You know, the way a person prays or the way a person changes over time or 
um, the, the, the contribution a person makes in a study or that, you know, it doesn't take much to encourage the leader and to make the heart of that servant leader burst with joy and glorify God. But for all of that to happen in church life is a grace. Uh, but the time for great rejoicing will be on the day of ultimate disclosure. That's what Paul says at the end of verse 14. He says that the day of the Lord is the day when all our lives and all our service will be laid bare. The, now, the day of the Lord, of course, is not the, the, the great and awful day of the Lord as in the day of judgment. No, it's not the separation of sheep and goats or of believers and unbelievers. This is the, the step beyond that, really, when those who enter into Christ's presence will have their deeds and the manner of doing them tested with fire and their reward will be consistent with what they've done. But Paul is so confident in here uh, of his clear conscience that he says, my conscience is so clear, I'm totally looking forward to that day. There'll be nothing to fear for him, nothing to be ashamed of. There'll be no sideward wince towards the members of the Corinthian church or mouthing, sorry, you know, for something he's done wrong. There'll be no gaping mouths from the other side, from the church either. Paul says, nothing will be a surprise to you. I'm sincere, without wax. What you see is what you get. I'm conscientious in my conduct as I rely on God's grace. Well, this same day will be the day when those who serve without hearing any whisper of gratitude or any appreciation of service in whatever area of Christian leadership. You know, you often hear people say, oh, it's the thankless task. Well, it's not really, but it certainly lacks a little bit of encouragement at times. Nevertheless, the encouragement we have from God's word is that that's perfectly fine. Not something to get worked up or upset about because the day is coming when people will see what we've done and people will be able to see its impact on them and boast in it, express gratitude and appreciation. That'll be the day of gratitude and gladness in church leaders as much as it will be the day when church leaders boast in the churches that they have served or the people that they have helped to know Christ or know him better. But that will also be the day not to boast in oneself. It will be the day when people seeing such uh, servant-hearted in uh, service will say, uh, glory to God, it's his doing. I was entirely reliant on his grace for every aspect of it. To God be the glory, not to me. I was conscientious in my conduct and reliant on his grace. Pray that that would be the kind of leaders that we have in Charlotte Chapel. Pray that that would be the kind of leaders who emerge as a next generation of leaders in Charlotte Chapel. Let us not fall foul of the worldliness, of the wisdom of the worldly, like we see in 2 Corinthians, who run after all sorts of pragmatic resources or fancy, uh, TED-talky rhetoric in their presentations. We want to do things well to the glory of God, but we set forth the truth plainly, to so commend ourselves 
before God to every man and every woman's conscience in the sight of God. And we want to exercise leadership in ministry. We want to see leaders emerge who are conscientious in their conduct, grace-reliant, who live and love and lead without wax. Those are the leaders of with integrity. Those are leaders who are sincere.